So um, welcome, and uh, I'm here today with Glenn Granger, CEO of Marketing QED, which is a marketing effectiveness technology company. Um, welcome, Glenn. Hello, Darren. Um, look, uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation because uh, with my science background and then getting into marketing, one of the key areas for me has always been the idea of you know, using data because uh, in science, uh, medical science, we use experimental data a lot as a way of, of being able to, um, to validate or, or get insights. But it's an area in marketing that's only really taken off in the last few years. That's right, yeah. Well, I actually have a, a science and maths background um, myself, and so you know, bringing those kind of techniques to, to the business world was kind of was a, was a neat way for me to kind of move from uh, academia into, into the business place. But you're right, marketing has only really embraced analytics as a way of trying to create some value in the last, I guess, the last 10 years, really. Um, there have been people pioneering this stuff for about 25 years. Mm. And I was lucky enough, you know, 25 years ago, in fact, to get into this this um, area. But the reason really was um, kind of twofold. One is that the data wasn't readily available mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago. And um, the people with the skills and the know-how who, who'd made that journey from the kind of mathematics world into the marketing world were quite few and far between. Um, but there was a guy... It was almost, sorry, Glenn, but it was almost like two tribes, wasn't it? Because yeah. I remember uh, 30 years ago when I went from science into um, uh, being a copywriter. Yeah. And in fact, I, I wrote a blog about this, having a researcher there who had done uh, uh, quant, no, qual groups talking about you know the statistical results from the uh, qual groups of 30 people and I started talking about the statistical significance of it and everyone just looked at me like I was talking you know sort of <laughs> yeah. Mandarin yeah they, they had no idea what I was talking about so it was there, there's definitely tribes isn't there you know definitely the, you know math men and mad men yeah exactly and that and that distinction is actually broken down over the over the years because marketing has been pushed on the back foot to, to try to justify itself more and more. There was a report done by Deloitte um, a good few years ago now that actually questioned other executives in companies about what they thought of the marketing teams. And it didn't make very happy reading because a lot of them said, well, they just don't seem to have any evidence for, for what they're doing. And so I think, and the, and the recession as well, really kind of shaken people up and made them have to justify their budgets. So I think what we're seeing is uh, that coupled with a lot more people going to business school and or business degrees of some sort and then finding their way into marketing teams, there tends to be more of a, should we say, an analytical education mm-hmm. along the way. The education system has changed a little bit. So people are getting a taste of statistics and other things like that. So that's what's come to, to a head, and, and then all the data has actually got a lot better as well. And technology's driving that, isn't it? I mean, yeah. there's this, we talk about big data because, you know, there's a lot and lot and lot of data. Yeah, that's right. I think it's IBM who, they've got some statistic that says, you know, there's an, in the last two years there's been more data created than in all the years of man, you know, mankind's existence yeah. up to that point. And that's probably always going to be true. You know, we're always going to be developing more and more data. Um, we're getting to the point now where 
yeah, lots of data has been created um, and we now need to really find ways of interpreting it. In my company, we actually have developed a suite of tools that kind of make that process as simple as possible. So, um, and we're finding a lot of people are interested in taking that technology in-house to be able to make sense of all this data that they're kind of drowning in at the moment. We've actually got to the point now where there's too much data and what you need is a lot of information. You want to create insight. Yeah, that's right. I mean, data itself is not actually very useful mm. until you actually create insight. I like that um, the, the distinction about, you know, there's data and then there's information yeah. and then there's, uh, uh, what was the next one? Insight and then knowledge. Yeah. Oh, and then the final one was wisdom. Yeah. You know, so that you can actually build or ladder up yeah. from the most basic form is data because all data is is a collection of numbers, facts, de- you know, digits. Yeah. that actually re, re, um, relate to a particular event. That's right. And, of course, what makes it more complicated is um, the, the, sort of the analytical skills needed to interpret this data um, don't tend to reside in most companies. Mm. You know, there are, there, we are seeing the emergence of a, you know, there's a new title that's emerging, the Chief Analytics Officer. Yeah. Uh, and another chief. <laughs> yeah, lots of chiefs, no Indians. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there, there's they are starting to recruit, and the universities are starting to put on marketing or business analytics courses, masters courses. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the US is ahead of the game as, as they normally are on these things. But they, um, we're starting to see there's a sort of new emergence of people with skills. Um, but so. Yeah, that's an essential requirement, really, that um, there, you've got to better turn that data into mm. all that, those steps you mentioned. So, Glenn, this is a fundamental shift for marketing because I know, you know over many years, marketers were pretty, um, pretty reliant and, and you know, felt very positive about their ability to instinctively know what should be done. Yeah. You know, the, the, the gut instinct was often the thing that, you know, drove their decision-making. So isn't this going to have a profound impact on those types of uh, marketers? It is. Um, you, you're absolutely right. There's this sort of gut feel and intuition. Um, there's an academic in the States called Bryn Yolfson who, at MIT who wrote a really interesting paper on the value of analytics in companies, and he, he talks about people using experience and intuition to make their decisions rather than facts and data. Um, and you're right, there's the, the world of marketing has been dominated by um, those kind of approaches. Um, but, unfortunately, it isn't as effective as using facts and data. And when people start using facts and data, they get the edge. They, they find that they can actually improve what they do. So those that want to cling tenaciously to the old ways are finding that they are now sort of slowly becoming in the minority because uh, other people are starting to embrace all this analytics, seeing some real value from it and actually pulling ahead in terms of um, competing. Mm-hmm. So this is what Bryn Yolfson and his colleagues found, that they found that actually productivity in companies that used analytics was 5 or 6% higher. Now, it might not seem very much, but over time, that starts to have a real impact. Um, there's another great book um, called Competing on Analytics um, by Davenport. And this was a, was a good 10 years ago so now. But he outlines this idea that um, analytics and data is the one of the new forms of 
competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, companies can come up with new innovations, but they can be copied very quickly. But using the, the customer data that you have or the market data that you have available to mine for, for sources of insight that is not, they're not readily available on the surface. You know, you've got to yeah. dig down into it. But once you do that, you can find all sorts of interesting little nuggets of insight which help you with your business um, tactics and strategy. And that's what giving, is giving people the advantage. So it's, it's paying back. And so the world is being dragged, whether they like it or not, some people are being dragged in that direction. So speaking of books, I mean, you have your own book that uh, you published a, a few, couple of years couple ago, of years ago yeah. Yeah. Um, called Rain Dancing, Why Rational Beats Ritual. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's why obviously this is a core area of, uh, you know, of interest for you because uh, one of the things that I often see, even in choosing agencies, is that uh, marketers will often default to their emotional response rather than a rational response. Yeah, I mean, I... What, what, what my question is, why do you think that's human nature to do that, or particularly marketing nature to do that? Well, I, th- I think it is human nature. It's not just, I mean, you know, marketers are humans, uh, I guess, in that sense, and so they, you know, they do what a lot of humans do. You know, like thinking and looking at data and, and kind of hypothesizing um, how things are really working is, is hard work. And it requires certain skills which a lot of people don't possess. So, I mean, that's like critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could put it like that. I mean, um, it's, I guess, some people who don't have any kind of uh, analytical background tend to be a little bit afraid of delving into numbers and, and, and how to approach it. I mean, that's why we've actually created a, the tools we've created to make that process a lot easier for people because we realized you've got to tool up people so that they can. They can do it themselves. It's like kind of they've got to strap on that jetpack so that they can fly. Yeah. Uh, without that, they're not going to fly, right? And um, but they need to be able to fly. And I think people they are they are wanting to embrace it, but they're they're um, just Fear, not sure well, fe- or fearful. I mean, I, yeah. I I um often see when companies especially go down this path of becoming more fact or or data data-driven decision-making, that often um, there's a fear within marketing. And I flippantly say, you know, perhaps the fear is that uh, Lord Leverhulme or John Wanamaker, who get quoted all the time, were actually optimists. Maybe the fear is that, you know, if we move to a data-driven rather than an intuition-driven decision-making process, we end up finding that it's not 50% of our budgets wasted, it's actually something more like 70%. Yeah. Well, okay, so I've got some insight on this. Um, As I say, I've spent over, you know, about 25 years analyzing marketing campaigns and looking at the actual paybacks from them using analytics. And what we found was a couple of interesting phenomenon. Um, because in, in, a, in the absence of real information about uh, what's working, what's not, people still make decisions. Yeah. And those decisions tend to get made by the kind of group dynamics that sometimes lead to kind of false decision-making outcomes. So, you know, we've all been in a situation where we sit in a room and nobody really has any information or understanding of what's of the reality of something, but we still have to make a decision. And the boss says something or somebody <laughs> with a, you know, experience says, well, I think it's this. And we all just go along with it. Yeah. Right? That's just, that's, that's good. They call it conformity in psychology. And then there's all sorts of other phenomena where people kind of just end up 
believing in things quite fervently sometimes without any real evidence for that. And what happens is traditions and myths about what's right for them and so on builds up. And this happens in every industry. So, you know, in analysing different campaigns from different industries, the various patterns emerge. What you find is that people tend, each industry tends to have its own pet media channel that it mm. uses. So typically consumer goods, you know, is a very heavy television advertiser. Yeah. Um, and what we find, uh, this is true for all different industries, so financial services often rely on... Uh, and it's often called the sort of collective wisdom, you know, of that category. That's what everyone else is doing, so we should do it too. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, there's nothing come along to shake their faith that that's true. Mm. Um that's why I call the book Rain Dancing, because, you know, somebody did a dance, it rained once. So everyone danced. And the myth, the myth continues, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and you've got to better break that cycle. So financial services often use direct mail, pharmaceuticals use sales forces, um, you know, electronics, consumer electronics often use print. There's, they all have their little pet channel. And what we find is that they tend to overspend. You almost, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll be overspending on their pet channel. Mm-hmm. But this is a really interesting other point, is that overall, the budget, they tend to underspend. Right. So about 80% of companies that I've seen over you know, my career um, underspend overall, but they're but just they spending in the wrong all, place. Yeah, they put all, so much of that into one channel, that's which right. may not be necessarily the right channel. Correct. Because they've chosen it, because that's what they've always done. So, so how do you break? I mean, if this is, as you say, not just marketing behaviour, but human behaviour, um, how do you, and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll go back to the point, you know, maybe marketing over-indexes on humanity. Um, <laughs> but uh, how do you break that cycle of people making decisions without enough information in a world where you can drown in information, how do you break it when there are such social pressures to conform yeah. within organisations? Because I see that uh, many times when decisions get made uh, in the work that we do with our clients, you know, they'll often just whoever the most senior person is in the room, they'll do that, uh, follow that. Uh, how do you, what do you need to do as an organisation to actually break this behaviour? Yeah, so it turns out there's some, there's some good books been written on this subject of group dynamics like this and how to break up groupthink, uh, as yeah. it's called. Um, you sometimes, you, what you need uh, is to have sort of diversity of opinion uh, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, you need people who have got the courage to stand up for new ideas and to say, no, 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 are we sure that's true? How about we do something different, you know, and just stir it up. So that like the guy in Life of Brian, you know, you're all different. We're all different. You're not the same. We're not the same. I am. So you need the guy that goes, I am. Yeah, you, yeah exactly. You've got to have, and, and actually it turns out that just one person who's fairly dogged in their resistance, if you like, mm-hmm. can make a big difference. It can stir everything up. It disrupts. You mean the person that's about to get fired yeah. <laughs> or, or promoted to, uh, I don't know, uh, New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> no, for all of our New Zealand uh, listeners. Uh, so, but yeah, that, so absolutely right. Now, okay, that's a good point. So, of course, why does nobody do that? Why does nobody stand up right, and say, you know, I'm different? And it's because they actually don't have enough information to be certain. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a bit of a flyer on the fact that they might be right. 
Oh, because it breaks down to my opinion versus your opinion, yeah. and then the most senior person in the room that decides whether you stay or go yeah. has a different opinion, you go. Yeah, and in some cultures, of course, in Asia particularly, that's a complete no-no that you would ever challenge. Oh, you'd never challenge your boss. Challenge the boss. So Even if it means the whole company goes under. Yeah. <laughs> you just all go I down. I told you it was an iceberg. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, what analytics can do is bring that, hard facts and information to the table which can't be easily ignored yeah right? as long as you've got a reasonably rational bunch of people which you know generally in businesses you do have um so that's what analytics can bring it can bring that dissenting voice in the corner of the room that awkward voice that says hold on that isn't right uh let's look at it a different way and, and let's look at the numbers because yeah. it's actually the numbers that are saying that's not right, not that person, isn't it? That's so right. in, in that way, it gives them the support and the uh, courage because it's no longer a personal thing. They can actually refer to this third party, which is the data. That's right. Exactly. They can point to something and say, look, this is, this is saying something different. right?" Mm. So like, we need to investigate and at least trial out some new stuff. And that's why analytics is, is such a great um, disruptor of these myths and traditions that have built up over the years. There's a great film, which is kind of parallel film, but um, called Moneyball, which yeah, is yeah. A, yeah, about baseball. Yeah. And the so he uses data to yeah. actually select a team. Yeah. Everyone tells it says that that's the wrong team yeah. because it's not the way you select a baseball team. Yeah. And they end up winning the world championship, series, think, world yeah. series. That's it. Only, only America can have a competition <laughs> that's only played in America and is called the world series, but that's a separate issue. Anyway, Moneyball. Yeah. So, so <laughs> that's right. So, and, and in there, he, he shows some great scenes, um, which reminded me of sitting with marketing teams, you know, where all these scouts who use their gut feel and experience intuition to make decisions and have done forever. They're the ones saying, no, 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 you know, I'm right. And, you know, and they come up with all sorts of rationalizations not rationality, but rationalizations mm. as to why their intuition is right. And there's a and huge distinction. everything else is wrong. Yeah. Mm. And so these guys, uh, and then when you, when you present the facts and the data, they suddenly, you know, they don't like it and they kick off sometimes. Mm. But that's why ultimately in the case of Moneyball, you had um, Billy Bean was the, the, the coach, the, the general manager. And he, um, yeah, he had the authority. Mm. And that's the key. So to talk a little bit about how companies can embrace this stuff, you need senior sponsorship. Yeah. It can't be the junior guy in the corner of the room because he might make some inroads, but actually he can be overruled. So you need senior sponsorship to push it through the organisation. And, and one of the issues that I've noticed socially is that it's often very painful for very senior people to feel like they're being proven wrong. Yeah. So one of the ways that uh, it, could, it can be done and moving to fact-based, data-driven decision-making is actually to use the data to drive the insights so that the people can still make decisions, but they're now based on data, but they're making decisions that are now more correct. You know, I, I think the danger is to bring about change. There's this process of someone makes a intuitive decision and then someone else comes in and goes, oh, yes, but the numbers say you're wrong. Yeah. And immediately you've got resistance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But to actually start to bring about change, which is, you know, rather than making decisions, to your point, in a lack 
of info and an environment that lacks information yeah. actually bring the information into this yeah. in the form of insights and and, and understanding yeah. that can then inform those decisions. Yeah, that's right. So you, you don't want to kind of call somebody out on decisions that they've already made. Ideally, you want to be um, thinking about future decisions Yeah. so that there's no egos at stake. You know, it's like, okay, well, what shall we do? Mm. Okay. Um, and that's where you can then start to introduce, well, the evidence suggests that this works well. Let's try some more of that. And then people can get behind that. And you know, increasingly, we see that people saying that you know, what does what does the what do the models say? Now, there's there's always a caveat here, um, and you know, the great thing is that you know, marketers are not going to be about to be put out of a job by kind of black boxes and mathematical models and so on, because ultimately, um, analysis can statistics can only give you correlation; it can't give you true causality. Mm. It can just show you that. When we did this, this appeared to happen. Yeah. But you need that human understanding and context of the, the marketplace that they're operating in to look at that and say, yes, that actually makes sense. And it is coherent with all the other facts and information we have about from other sources, market research and other experience we have. So what you are, the, the ideal is that you blend it together. It becomes, I think you were... Yeah, you know, there's a an idea that you kind of mix ideas together. You know, you kind of take some analytics, you take some experience, you take some other market research that you've got, and you find the sweet spot where they all mm. are consistent with each other. Well, yeah. For, again, from and and you'll know this, the scientific method, yeah. which I was trained in to be you know to be able to work in um, in uh, medical research. You know, there there is those distinct steps. There is the observation. Yeah. You know, you observe data, you observe the real world, you you observe and try and identify trends and patterns. And when you have those observations, which is what data provides, you then uh, draw a hypothesis. What is the causal effect yeah. that it's driving that? But it's only a hypothesis. It's not real yeah. because it's just your interpretation which your interpretation is also being influenced by your experience, your bias, your you know all of the things that make you who, a human being. You know this is the whole observer principle in any scientific uh, uh, environment. The observer actually brings themselves into the experiment. So then you've got the observation, you've made the hypothesis, then you have to set up a test. Yeah. Now this is where uh, science and business go two separate ways because in science you either need a double blind or you need a, a, a control group to be able to compare what happens when I do nothing compared to what happens when I do the experiment. In business it's very hard to set up test groups. Yeah. Yeah. And, and increasingly, because of the complexity, you'll never ever get a group that is not affected by something you do. But you can still start to do things as an, ex think of it as an experiment and just observe what the outcomes are. Yes. Are the outcomes what your hypothesis predicted or are they different? And if they're different, then rethink the data that's come in from the experiment to see, well, what's a new hypothesis? Yeah. to draw this, and if they're exactly what you predicted, then do it again to see if you can reproduce it. Because that's the other interesting thing about science, is that nothing is actually proven until you can reproduce it independently. That's right. And in fact, so that's a very good distinction. In the physical world, um, we, we can, within a given context, um, create deterministic laws. You know, we, can, yeah. we know that if we do this, something will happen. 
And you, know, you think about a chemical reaction or, you know, mm. um, breaking point of a particular material. Or oh, yeah, I remember uh, ChemLab, you know, dropping sodium metal into water and having it shoot around and explode, you know, and we'd all laugh except for yeah. the uh, chemistry professor <laughs> who would, uh, you know, be very disappointed. But anyway, yeah. yeah, there's certain things that we know and, and have laws attached yeah, to Yeah, and, and because the world is... Um, you know, follows a uh, law of identity and the law of causality and so on, it means that these things are repeatable. Um, we can get a good understanding of what's happened within a given context. In the, in the human world, you know, in social sciences, people, can, people's on, people are not subject to immutable uh, eternal laws, right? Mm. The deterministic laws. So people's behavior can change. But what, so what, you're, what you can ever, only ever hope to do is to measure how they're behaving now yeah. and hope that in the near future they'll sort of carry on behaving in a similar way. And generally they do. You know, if we're talking about buying cornflakes or baked beans or, you know, mobile phone tariffs, they, you know, by and large, people's behavior is fairly stable. Uh, it's quite interesting. Even in war zones, you know, the kind of day-to-day -day life still sort of carries on. You know, it's quite interesting. So, um, but of course it can change, it can evolve. And yeah. so the kind of models that we use to measure human behavior are what we call stochastic models. They are models that acknowledge that there are errors, that there's a bit of noise in the data. Mm -hmm. um, but we get, you know, we, we, we make sure that the noise isn't sort of uh, hiding other important factors that we've missed. And so we're kind of discounting that. And, and as long as the noise is fairly random up and down, um, we can live with that. We're not going to have a model that's 100%, you know, absolute, like a physics law or chemistry mm. law would be. And so long as um, we keep taking our measurements, we keep, you know, dipping into the data to see how things are evolving, it's very useful. It's very useful for near-term, you know, and I mean by near-term, I mean kind of, you know, six months to a year kind of forecasting. Which is about the time, a length of a budget, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So... Um, the, the analytical approach, the kind of scientific approach, uh, can work by and large in the social sciences, so long as you're not expecting it to be immutable laws that will be true for all time. Yeah. And, you know, but this is where there's this crossover. You know, we, we started off talking, I, I raised the issue of madmen and mathmen, mm. but this is where the two coming together actually work quite well because. Um, people would say to me, you know, having gone from medical research into working as a copywriter, they'd say, well, how do you make the transition? But in actual fact, there is creativity in science. You know, oh, yeah. You know, the, to, to come up with a hypothesis is actually a creative process. I think it was Einstein that said, you know, it was 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, but there is still yeah. a significant amount of what marketers would largely champion as their strength, being able to hypo you know, hypothesize, create, have intuition or, or response. But what, I guess what we're talking about here is the opportunity is not to use that skill in a vacuum, but to use it in a world that is rich with data, which should be then rich with insight, which then allows you to use those insights to create these hypotheses and make these decisions. That's absolutely right. And I mean, nobody quite understands how human beings can make these kind of, this gain this causal understanding of how the world works. You know, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, but we seem to be able to do that. And um, 
if you look at the context, you need if you look at data, you look at the correlations that data can tell you, you then need to layer on top of that your understanding of what a true causal path would look like. Mm. Um, you can't just trust the blind correlations. You need to be able to say, uh, you know, it makes sense that that happens like that. And here's how I would hypothesize what's happening. Yeah. You know, that is causing this, is causing this, and we, that all makes sense and it's consistent with other data we have. And you, you've got to kind of see the pathway in the real world, in the context of the business that you're operating. Um, but, and that's why it's a blend. It is a blend, absolutely, mm. of know-how. But the other important thing is that people think decisions that they make are the end game. Whereas what I like about science and a scientific approach is a hypothesis is not the end game. Yeah. It's another step, right? Mm. And that if we could start to get into the process, this belief that, you know, when you make a decision, it's to do, you know, to do a, follow a particular path. That doesn't mean that everything else has been eliminated because constantly, as you say, monitoring that environment and seeing what the lessons can be learned and responding to those. Yeah actually makes it a much more dynamic yes. and, I'd, I believe, ultimately more effective approach than making a decision and just following that path blindly yeah. um, long term. Yeah, it is. It's right. It's the current hypothesis idea. So it's, mm. the, you know, it's where are we at and, it's, and it evolves. Um, and, and we're seeing that. You know, when companies that I've seen that have taken analytics in-house in marketing departments, they are now doing you know, 10 times the amount of analysis that they were previously doing. Um, they one a question leads to an answer, which leads to another question, and the hypotheses and the complexity of where they're delving and going. It's like sort of just it keeps the whole thing keeps unraveling as you mm. more you pull it. It's like pulling a string on a jumper, you know, it kind of the whole thing just keeps unraveling. And uh, it, it leads sometimes to some very profound insights which completely change the business model. Yeah. So I give you an example. Um, I know an insurance company where they were their business was suffering, um, and they in in the UK they have these price comparison websites for insurance companies. So you go onto one of these websites, you type in what you're looking for, and then there'll be a, a ranking of all the companies and the offers that they're you know the prices of all the policies. And what um, what a lot of people were thinking in this particular company was that the online people, the people that bought their policies through these aggregators, these the digital world, were a different type of customer from the people who just picked up the phone mm -hmm. and called direct. And what they discovered was that they weren't a separate audience at all. Yeah. Um, they discovered that people were, if they were looking at the rankings on the aggregator website, picking the top two or three, and then calling direct, they weren't going through yeah. the website. Which, when you say it, you think, "Well, that's obvious. I do that." You know, it's, of course you do. But that's the insight brought to the data. That's the human insight, isn't they, it? Well, they found a correlation yeah. between um, the, the direct line and the ranking in the in the the aggregator. Yeah. So then they said, "Well, what we need to do is find our way to you know make sure that we are at the top end of the rankings, yeah, so that we'll get more direct business." Yeah. And that's what happened. And, mm. the, and you know, they've had great results. You see the same thing in uh, when people build uh, attribution models, you know, when they're uh, looking at media and, yeah. and trying to work out where the attribution comes from. Because, you know, if you work on last click, the only place you'd look is Google. Yeah. But in actual fact, a lot of display advertising actually then leads to search yeah. 
for particular phrases because people don't want to click on the ad because they know that that will take them through your sales funnel, whereas they feel if they do a search and then find their own way through the process. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, it's it's that insight that you need to develop from looking at the data and then making a hypothesis and then testing it to start to look at how many people do a search for a particular phrase that was in your display ad within two or three minutes of that display ad being shown yeah. is the way of testing it and looking at that data. Yeah, in fact, we, we've uh, seen a case study on this. Um, we helped an electronics retailer look at this, and they were looking at last click as the, their method, mm. and it completely undervalued display advertising. Mm. And when you do a proper analysis of this over, let's say, a month before purchase, what, what you discover is a different picture. What you discover is display does its work a month ago yes. to stimulate and then they do and more then of their own. closer yeah. to the day of purchase, they're doing searches for finding more information. Then they go to affiliate sites and so on. Then the purchase happens. And when this company looked at the whole picture, they actually saw that the effective display was twice what they thought it was. Now, you mentioned it before, and I just want to pick up on it now, is that often people will look at data and then uh, jump to a, uh, a cause and effect, which I think... Uh, you know, you need to be careful about and is beautifully demonstrated by that series of books on Freakonomics, you know, where, you know, data in isolation doesn't, as you say, tell you what the cause is and that people can quickly, without the proper level of interrogation and consideration and and analysis, will um, start to look at data and, you know, um, looking at last click, you go, well, all our money should be on Google. Yeah. Whereas in actual fact, display advertising has an impact. Yeah. What What are some things that people, you know, you would recommend to people when they're going, starting out, looking at data and, and analytics to stop that type of behaviour, that freakonomics behaviour What happening? you mean, kind of confusing correlation with causality? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, there's no easy answer to that. I think the, the first thing I would say is that um, you don't have to boil the ocean when it comes to data analysis. You you can start with some, you know, just some big buckets of spend. You know, analyze how they appear to be driving behavior, <clears throat> and um, if that doesn't quite kind of give you any results that look make sense, you then have to say, okay, well, let's look at another. Let's look at a deeper level of data. So I would always suggest you start with a sort of quite high level aggregated level of data and start to drill your way down as need requires yeah. and still until you start getting something that makes sense from a causal point of view rather than just a pure correlation point of view and this is kind of segues into this whole discussion about what is big data right people talk about yeah. big data and actually the truth is big data doesn't have to be big mm. uh, in fact too much data is a real pain to kind of get your head around so, um, well, there's the mathematics law of big numbers. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, the bigger the, the bigger the sample, the more likely it is to be an average result. Well, yeah, and yes, <laughs> but so if you dig too deep into, let's say, individual consumer level data, um, you can get interesting analysis there, but you will get a lot more noise mm. at that lower level. And if you the law of large numbers, as you as you aggregate up and you yeah. get kind of a um, a total picture. Um, that it's often you can see uh, you can see the bigger picture like that. Mm. So I, that's what I would suggest. I'd suggest you go in, start with some fairly simple data sets at a fairly high level, see what kind of 
um, correlations you're getting and then make sense, interpret those and then just drill down. Sense making. I like the term sense making, you know, because it, it is what, how does this make sense to me? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, um, I think uh, we actually have to wind it up there, but thank you very much, Glenn. It's been a fascinating talk. I, I was going to say, I think this has worked, uh, you know, been a terrific discussion, but I don't have any data to support that. <laughs> well, maybe you will. I don't know. Do you get a kind of <laughs> rankings of your podcast downloads. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Darren.